The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Eight is great, so says Dr. Fate. But enough of that, helmeted mystic hero. This is Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly program where we revisit the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine, one issue at a time. I like comic books, and my name is Adam. And I'm Michael, telling you that M tattooed over my eye doesn't stand for mutant. So so I want to take a brief moment before we dive into this issue of Wizard. In the world right now, we're dealing with this coronavirus crisis, but I know a lot of people are having a hard time with it and going through real hardship. I've had friends that have gotten furloughed from their jobs, and people are struggling to buy food and groceries and whatnot. Families are divided because they can't visit each other because of the fear of getting each other sick. And even myself, you know, I've been working from home and taking care of my children with my wife and my wife's working from home as well. And I, I know you've been dealing with a lot on your end. I was even conflicted as of, you know, Thursdays. Like, do I want to do this episode? And I, and I stopped and thought about it. And I said to myself, you know, I think it's good to do this because it gives us two hours or so to sit down and talk to each other about something other than what's going on in the world at large right now and for people who are listening to have a moment to disconnect from what they're hearing on the news or they're seeing on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those other social media platforms and just kind of take a journey with us and so take the next two hours and just unplug join us on a fun little journey back in time to the eighth issue of wizard and and have a few laughs along the way you know this week we actually we have no guest but it's actually fun for me also michael i enjoy when it's just the two of us because this is a journey that we're taking together we're in it for the long haul and we're we're so early in our in our run of this show and yet each time it's just the two of us like oh here we are this is cool and we love our guests we're so grateful for them but it's kind of fun to to do this just the two of us this time around we hope you all enjoyed our recent bonus episode review of the flash 1990 tv series we had a blast reviewing that short-lived show and as a part of the celebration we had a giveaway on social media to six lucky listeners who want a copy of the flash 1990 tv specials but in addition to the comic all six winners also earned an entry into our grand prize drawing for the flash complete series dvd set and now Ooh. it's time to pick that winner we are going to announce who is going to be taking that home so got our six finalists written out here we are making the selection and well hey so gbax nerd jam room looks like you have the complete 22 episode series of the flash on dvd heading your way very passionate listener uh, to the podcast as well so very happy you you won this time around and uh we will get that out to you soon thanks so much for listening that's awesome congratulations and thank you for everybody who participated thank you so much for sure and you know if you didn't win this time around we always have a giveaway contest planned just like wizard was big with the giveaways we're doing it too keeping that spirit alive and adam's got plenty of collectibles that he could probably auction (laughs) off 
Ain't it the truth? All right. Let's go ahead and open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. Alrighty, so here we go. We've been hearing from a lot of new listeners on social media lately, uh, sharing messages like at Salunis, who said, Great episode. Reliving these years, the years I collected most of my comics from 90 to 93, through Wizard is brilliant and has been reigniting my interest in comics. Bought some old books last week to fill in some gaps and subscribe to Marvel Unlimited. Marvel, sponsor this podcast is what he said. Yeah, I'm with Slutus. Marvel, sponsor our podcast. But seriously, we are thrilled, really, to be getting you all back into comics, you know, and revisiting your childhoods in that way. We've heard this message a lot. I mean, that this is something that a lot of people are saying as they're reaching out. So we just say to you, loyal listeners, keep spreading the word, help your friends themselves rediscover that comic collecting enthusiasm from their younger days. Again, it's just, it's a stress reliever. Even when it's not a, a crazy time in the world, there's just the stress of life. And if you can go back and jump into the family, fantasy world of comics and remembering when it was all fresh and new. And even on top of that, maybe you didn't read as many comics as we did back then, but we go into like the action figure portion of it and stuff like that. That's part of our history too and our childhood and our our memories. My, I was sitting down watching Toy Story with my daughter all day today. We watched one, two, and three and just remembering the toys that they pop up in there. And I was like, wow, I miss those. And those you know, that's kind of why we do this is because we're re- reliving these memories that we had and, and building new ones as well. And thanks for that message, Salunas. Okay, so next we have Magic Words Letters column by Mario Dada (laughs) from San Francisco, California. I want to know who is the strongest Marvel team and who is the second strongest. And if they had to fight, who would win? I really like Wizard. Keep up the good work. You guys should all get raises. I love that. That's a great way to add the letters. Wizard's response is, Well, Mario, the most powerful Marvel team would undoubtedly be the combined East Coast-West Coast Avengers, with such incredible powerhouses like Thor, Iron Man, She-Hulk, Wonder Man, Captain America, and The Vision. The Avengers can't be defeated in straightforward combat. The second strongest Marvel team would have to be the combined Gold and Blue Strike teams of the X-Men, featuring such warriors as Wolverine, Colossus, Bishop, Archangel, and Cyclops. The X-Men are a powerful group group, but probably could be defeated by the Avengers. Wow, how about that? Hmm, Interesting. Where do you fall on that, Michael? What do you think? Is it the Avengers? Is it the X-Men? It's hard, because in the history of Marvel, and there's been a a lot of this where it's happened, they do a lot of heroes versus heroes battles. And even a few years ago, they did the Avengers versus X-Men story. I always kind of fall on the side of, like, I want the Avengers to win, because I was always, you know... Captain America, Spider-Man growing up. But the thing with the uh, with the X-Men in particular is it's so vast and some of their power sets are so massive, an nth level mutant or like a 10th level of, you know, mutant like Jean Grey who could control everyone's minds and, you know, all those things. I would have to say if I really had to come push, come to shove, especially because of the characters of Professor X and Jean Grey, the X-Men would probably win because they could psychologically control all the Avengers, I think. 
Well, yeah, because this is like a grade school level argument that Wizard is making because they are just talking 100% who has the strongest, you know, the might. Yes, you have Thor, who is a god. You have She-Hulk. You have these characters that are enhanced and have lots of muscles, but that is not the way you win a battle in the comic book world. That's how the battles get started and they continue. But ultimately, like you said, yeah, it's Xavier, it's Jean Grey, it's whoever they pull out that could literally just like cripple you mentally and then it's over but the question becomes would xavier's powers work on thor for example doesn't isn't as guardian immune that's probably been answered in some crossover at some point but i yeah i would tend to side also with the x-men ultimately but this is very funny to me because i think i don't know for sure we're gonna find out But I know that later on, there is, like, years long a debate in the Magic Words section over who could beat the X-Men. And the editor of that section, he says, Iron Man alone could defeat all the X-Men. And that just, like, explodes. It's like a nuclear bomb. So I feel like this is the beginning of that. (laughs) Of him saying, yeah, the Avengers would win, of course. And then it's just going to devolve into, yeah, Iron Man could do it. The X-Men are nothing. You know, so we'll see. See, <laughs> that'll be something to come back to for but sure. That's the thing, though, like Iron Man in the '90s was much more damaged than he is today in the comics. Like, you know, he had all the alcohol problems back then, and the substance abuse, and the womanizing, and he wasn't—he wasn't the Iron Man we see in the comics today. So, I wonder if that's really the case back then. Yeah, you have to think, yeah, because if it's 1992, it's a very different world. Nowadays, it probably would be the Avengers, just because how many X-Men became Avengers, you know what I'm saying? Right. And I think at this point in time, they were very much separate camps, and you were in one book, and that's where you stayed, unless you were like Beast, right? Originally an X-Men, then he was an Avenger, then he was an X-Factor, then he was back to X-Men. Ah, so many teams. Speaking of Beast, did you know this? So I was bored and binge watching youtube and went down like a vortex of youtube videos on 90s cartoons did you know that beast was only supposed to be in the very first episode of the x-men show but because he was so popular in that show and he was the intellectual like balance in the in the cartoon they decided to keep him in every, every episode except for i think four the only character that's in every episode more than him is Wolverine, who is only short by two episodes in the entire run. That is an interesting tidbit, yeah, because definitely that brainy beast, I mean, everybody was just like, wow, we just, we love that guy. It paved the way for Kelsey Grammer to play him perfectly at X-Men The Last Stand. So, folks, here comes one of my favorite segments is the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. <laughs> This month, in April of 1992, on the movies list, we have a couple of doozies on April 3rd. Roll over, Beethoven, because Beethoven is in theaters. And I remember going to see this with my parents and and my sister, and it was one of those movies that we were like, oh my god, everybody wanted a dog, and it sparked this need for everybody to buy big dogs in their house it was a huge movie i still think that movie is very nostalgic and fun yeah it's a little cheesy nowadays but it's a great film did you go see it in the theaters as a kid 
Oh, I definitely did. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was a phenomenon which I find hilarious. Yeah, it's just like a big dog movie, and it spawned so many sequels, most of them direct-to-video. But I watched this just, like, last year. I picked it up on VHS, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I was just like, wow, this is dark. It's a dark movie. Right? Yeah, this veterinarian wants to kill Beethoven, yeah. and he frames him for biting him and all this stuff. And the fun fact of that movie is that the evil veterinarian is a guy who was in all these disney movies in the 60s including the shaggy dog and so that was kind of the joke that he had been a dog in a movie and that now he was out to kill the dog it was also kind of interesting at at this time of cinema there's a lot of dog buddy movies like turner and hooch was a movie that was a very popular that i really like but jim belushi there's a couple other ones that i'm forgetting with and it does have a little bit of like a home alone feel and the way it was shot and the story is told and and the villain is so over the top and and i do remember the dog biting part like he he faked the dog biting him and and try to get him you know killed which is very interesting and it is dark if you think about it wow it's also an early david duchovny role he plays one of the bad guys in it well i guess he's not really a bad guy he's just a jerky executive so the next movie also came out on april 3rd was a movie called straight talk and i recognized the name was this a Dolly Parton movie? It is, yes. It is a Dolly Parton movie. I thought so. Because uh, I remember seeing this with my mom, and she was a big Dolly Parton fan. It was almost like the sequel to 9 to 5 in a way, or at least it felt like it to me. But wasn't she like, um, she a, she was a radio host, right? Yeah, like so it's basically host? like Dr. Laura Schlesinger, except she was a you know radio psychologist that just spoke common sense. You know, So she wasn't like officially licensed or anything she gets put into the role because she's just like you know yeah southern charm and wisdom and i remember seeing this in the theaters too because you know my dad loved him some dolly parton of course and from nine to five and all that but also we were die hard my family my dad and i especially listening to talk radio like all day in the house in the car talk radio talk radio talk radio so i was totally steeped in the stuff so when i went and saw the movie i was like oh i understand this world for me like podcasting now is just just that natural extension it's like i always was listening to all these different personalities on the radio and now you know could perform a little bit on the mic and send it out to the world so yeah very fun movie for me actually i just picked that up recently and i'm excited to uh, to give it a watch again this explains a lot <laughs> knowing you and, and knowing your now connection to this movie and talk radio in the night because i too love talk radio but i didn't get into the to talk radio to more like when I was in college and listening to like Opie and Anthony and, and Howard Stern and stuff like that. But this makes a lot of sense now for me. Why you're and why you're so good at this as well. It's very interesting. So it's, it's a little eye opener for me. I like it. I'm, I'm into it. Now, the next couple of movies that came out came out on April 10th. Technically, both of these would probably be cult classics, I would say. But the first one, even more so. And it spawned the careers of a lot of well-known actors. When I mention this movie, everyone is going to be like, Oh my god, I love that movie! I may have only seen it once, but I still love it. Is Newsies. Well, and everybody knows, you know, early Christian Bale, right? So Batman jumping around, dancing, Max Casella from Doogie Howser, MD. That was all I cared about when that movie came out. I was like, it's the guy, it's Vinny from Doogie Howser. And that was the whole reason I saw it. Me too. 
he was the only real recognizable name as a kid that like, oh, I know who that guy is. And nowadays you look back and you're like, Christian Bale was in that movie. And he's more or less the main character. And he's so huge now, but it didn't matter back then. <laughs> yeah, like, it, I, didn't know I, I honestly, yeah, like I saw it once and I never needed to see it again. And yet my connection to it is that there were these girls that were a few years older than me. And I remember like I was in fourth grade, they were in sixth grade. And in our elementary school talent show, they did like the big number, you know, it's a fine life carrying event, whatever. And so they did all the choreography. They learned all the parts. And then in high school, years later, they got back together for the talent show and they reenacted their famous act. <laughs> they did it all over really? again. And so for me, it was like super nostalgic. I was like, I can't believe it. I was there the first time. That's the special place that Newsies has in my heart. My wife and I have been binge watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Max Cassell is all over the most recent season. He's in it a couple episodes. Oh. Like, oh, wow. It's the guy from Doogie Hauser. He's back. So happy. <laughs> so the next movie also on the, the 10th of April is Fern Gully, which... If you know Fern Gully, it's an animated film. I feel like it was from the same studio that did like Fievel Goes West and, and the Fievel films. Yeah, Don Bluth. Yeah, right? That's what I thought. It's a weird movie. I mean, obviously in the 90s, we were super into environmentalism and pollution was evil. You know, and Tim Curry plays this like smog monster creature. The weirdest thing for me, I remember at the time, you had just coming off. Actually, was, was this before Aladdin? Robin Williams was in this as this, like, wombat creature, you know, and he, like, bonks his head on a tree, I'm blind, I'm blind, and then he hits his head again, I can see, it's a miracle! <laughs> and that, I just, that was all I remembered from the movie, but then I remember, like, wait, but he's also the genie in Aladdin, what's he doing in this movie, because it's not Disney, so I just thought it was weird, it was, like, one of those first times where I was like, oh, you're not connected to a studio for your entire life, you know, like, yeah. you're only gonna be a Disney employee or performer no 92 is aladdin oh really in november of 92 oh so Aladdin came out after this interesting yeah. huh fern gully is one of those movies where it's it's kind of forgettable I, I mean i remember seeing it as a kid but i couldn't i mean other than it being fairies and stuff like that and being an animated film i don't remember much about it but it was a cute movie at the time as a kid i think because my sister wanted to see it and stuff like that but and now the next movie is probably one of the more well-known movies from that month would be april 17th is the movie the babe growing up i, I was a, a a bit of a baseball fan. Like, I like baseball a lot. I grew up in New York, and I was more of a Mets fan, but my cousins were all Yankee fans, and starred John Goodman as Babe Ruth. And I remember seeing this movie. I think I saw this twice in the theaters. Wow. I loved this movie. And I still haven't seen it after all these years. I remember the trailers playing on TV oh, all the yeah. time. And John All Goodman, we were just in love with him. We still are. It just it reminds you how long he's been in the business yeah. and how much he has our heart. And this was just like that time where he's like, oh, well, he's going to play every big fat character, whether it's Babe Ruth or whether it's Fred Flintstone or whoever it is. But I just think it's really cool that, yeah, he has endured so much. And I was just recently listening to him get interviewed on Mark Maron's podcast. He actually is a hardcore comics fan. Like, really? From way back. He was reading Marvel in dc in the 60s wow. and he has his collection he has all that stuff like that was his world so that was really cool to hear i didn't know that that's kind of interesting let's move on to the music the first one this is a, a performer i don't know if you call him a singer or an artist 
what are you talking? He is a national treasure. He is an entertainer. I'll give him that. Uh, an artist known as Weird Al Yankovic. And the album is Off the Deep End from April the 14th. This this album was my world. Was this the one where he does... Uh... Smells like Nirvana. Yes. But like this is an album where I memorized every single song. I listened to it so much and would just perform it, you know, at random times. Also in a talent show, I did this song called I Can't Watch This, which was a parody of MC Hammer's I Can't Touch This. Yes. From the very early days of my life, I had Weird Al albums. So like he was really my deepest connection to pop culture. There were so many big, radio hits that I only knew the Weird Al version, that eventually I caught up with the actual artist who made it famous. So the, the next album, which came out on April 16th, is from the band called The Cure, was an album called Wish. I was actually a, a bit of a Cure fan, even though I was a little bit young for them. This was one of the albums that I wasn't super into. Like I, I was really into like the song Pictures of You, and there's a whole bunch of more 80s stuff that I really liked. And I and I actually reconnected to that in college. But this was one of the albums that I don't know a lot of the songs off of, or I could really you know say that I was yeah, like. Yeah, see, in love that's with interesting it. because for me, like, yeah, I always think of The Cure as an 80s band, and yet the only song I know of theirs is the one off this album the single Friday I'm in Love like I feel like that is their biggest hit that is a big hit yeah I had no idea that it was it came out in 92 like yeah. it just it still sounds like an 80s song it does sound like an 80s <laughs> it's song. definitely it new much... wave still you yeah. know so uh, yeah but that that one surprised me so now next is a New York band the Beastie Boys check your head featuring so what you what you what you want <laughs> on April the 21st my cousin was heavy into the beastie boys obsessed with the beastie boys and i was really into like ill communication and um in their first album and some of that i like this song a lot was this the album with sabotage on it no i did a quick google search ill communication had sabotage which i think is still to this day they're probably their biggest biggest hit uh, and that came out in 94 so we'll be talking about that in a couple of years guys i'm not a huge beastie boys fan i had a friend in high school nasim who yeah she was diehard beastie boys so much so that she actually drafted a bunch of guys for like this school pep rally and taught them like beastie boys choreography got them in these jumpsuits that they were wearing at the time and she's just like yeah you guys gotta do this beastie boys song for me but i i only knew like brass monkey uh, i remember hearing that in elementary school on the bus when we were going on a field trip to like the beach for some science project thing and i just remember brass monkey what is that you know i just thought it was hilarious and then i had a an, at another like fundraiser talent show. so many talent shows in my life but the, <laughs> there are these guys that were on a football team and they did girls so they did that song where they were just like chasing each other around and one of the guys had a wig on you know jock humor it's like i guess that's funny but <laughs> but that's like as close as i ever got to the beastie boys but yeah no the beastie boys are one of those bands that they always kind of you hear about them they have a documentary coming out now about them which is kind of interesting yeah i know they had a big book that just came out too that a lot of people said was fantastic so now here's a really cool fun fact and when i say this everyone's gonna headbag the top four song of April of 1992 is Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen due to its overwhelming, you know, presence and performance and montage in Wayne's World. And still to this day, whenever that movie comes on, if that scene is on, 
no matter how old you are or no matter where you are in your life, you're doing the headbang. I don't care who you are. It's just the way they do it. And it's absolutely. Well, and I just remember like seeing the music video that was intercut with footage from Wayne's world on MTV. And this is a song that came out in the seventies and all of a sudden now it's back. And the footage that they showed was, you know, queen performing live and Freddie Mercury's in this like silk jumpsuit. And I just, it was so weird. Like that it had this resurgence. I bet it was more popular in 92 than it was when it initially came out, even. You know, oh, I'm sure it was a Without hit. A doubt. Without a doubt. Because I remember after seeing Wayne's World, I went out and bought, like, Queen's Greatest Hits Volume 1 and had, like, Bicycle and a whole bunch of other Queen songs. So that was a really fun trip down the Wave Riders Wayback Machine and we're moving on. Yeah, now we get into our table of contents. So on this cover of Wizard number 8, we have the X-Men character Bishop, who was basically brand new to the team at this time. And this was a cover by Will Sportacio, who we've talked about on previous episodes. And what's interesting to me is I always felt like this was one of the most iconic wizard covers. If you just look through their history, because, you know, Bishop's covered, he's just like draped in the starry wizard robe. But this is a beautiful cover, though. It is really a really nice cover. But there wasn't that much known about Bishop as a character. There was just the most basic bio included in this issue that essentially he's from the future, as I understand it, from the days of future past era. So like where all the X-Men had died, and he was kind of the step beyond that. But also, he, then he had his mutant power, which was, you know, to absorb the, any energy that's thrown at him, he can blast it back at you with an energy blast. So, you know, he kind of, you know, was like, yes, he had a cool mutant power, but most of all, you know, it's just like, oh, now he's for the future in our time, and we're going to get into this a little bit more when we get to Robin's Reading Rainbow, but his interaction with our modern-day X-Men, which was from his past, is very interesting but he debuted for those who are interested you want to go back and pick up that issue <laughs> in uncanny x-men number 282 mm. but at this point wills portacio who is drawing uncanny x-men while jim lee is drawing the standalone x-men title it's interesting they have an interview with him here and he talks about how he got hired by marvel in 1983 just by showing samples at the san diego comic-con and much like we talked about you'll recall when garen was on for episode Episode 5, I believe, when we talked about that first work by Wills Portacio in the last issue of the Marvel Star Wars comic. Well, that's what he was doing. He was just inking comics at the time. And now, at this point, he's one of the hottest artists that are up and coming. But you think he'd been in the business quite a while at this point, you know? He's like almost 10 years in. And now he's finally getting his due. And he was part of the Homage Studios with Jim Lee, which was uh, based in San Diego at the time. I thought it was interesting because they said, the whole reason that they even organized Homage Studios is just so they wouldn't have to sit alone at home and draw every day just in a room by themselves. You know, they're like, now we can have a camaraderie. Now we can have a place to hang out. Hmm. So it wasn't like really any major business plan or anything like that. They're just like, yeah, we were lonely. So we decided we wanted some friends. And then, of course, as we mentioned last issue, there was Youngblood had just come out, Youngblood number one. And so Wizard is asking Wills about this. They say, what are your plans with Image Press? There's Rob Liefeld's Youngblood, Todd McFarlane's Spawn, Jim Lee's Wildcats. What about you? 
Well, I've been offered a position in the company to join that lineup. I haven't made a decision up until this point. The only thing I can say is it seems the top ten is shifting towards that direction. I might have to follow. It does entice me to create and own my own characters. However, I've been so busy on Punisher, X-Factor, and Uncanny, I really don't know what I want to do. So the wizard asks, do you have a book, a name, a team you have in mind? I've always wanted to do a Conan-type story, the idea of a man struggling to survive, the universe they're talking about is a superhero universe so i'll have to think that out so he was not 100 percent on board yet you know, he hadn't planned to jump ship i guess that's a pretty bold statement even though he's kind of evasive about it he still kind of says hey you know i've thought about leaving like marvel's one of the biggest companies in in the world in comics even at that time it was the, probably the biggest name and to say that in an article like you know, I've been offered. If it were me, I wouldn't have said anything because who knows if that would have fell through and, you know, you burn your bridge with, you know, with Marvel, you know? Well, and he's even implicating everybody. I don't know what he's referring to when he's saying it seems like the top 10 is leaning that way, but I think he's just talking about like the top artists and creators, you know, in the business all seem to be going to that company. So he's almost implicating a bunch of other people outside of those three that were mentioned. But I also found it interesting because... Michael, do you know the book he ultimately does create for Image? Are you familiar with what his title was when they launched? When you say it, I'll probably know it, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Okay, have you ever heard the name Wetworks? I have heard the name Wetworks. I've never read it, but I've heard of it, yes. Is there a visual that comes to mind? There's a very specific color associated with Wetworks. Uh... It's shiny. <laughs> I can't think of it, but it's like a. Did did the word works have an X at the end of it? No, it didn't. It was just wet works as it was. It's actually a military term. And I watched a quick YouTube video where he explained that he was a military brat. He grew up on military bases. So even though he said, I wanted to create a Conan type book, when he finally goes to image, he creates wet works, which is basically about a team of military operatives, but they get this symbiotic golden skin then that goes on their bodies. Oh, yeah. Yes, I remember mostly, because I didn't read the comic, but there were McFarlane toys put out Wetworks action figures. I was like, who are these huge, like, muscle-bound gold guys? Wow. It's funny, because I just Google searched it real quick, and apparently DC Comics owns it now. Yeah, well, I think it ended up probably getting folded somehow into the Wildstorm deal, because Will Sportacio, we'll get into this later, but he didn't actually get to produce very many comics at Image. Mm-hmm. He had a family tragedy that prevented him from actually completing his books. It's kind of how that worked. So the next article here that they have is an interview with a writer named Sarah Byam. And the title of the article is Canary in the Catbird Seat. This is in reference to a new Black Canary book that DC is about to produce. And Sarah, being a female writer, they're very interested in to what she's going to bring to the book is she's saying she's going to make it more political, more feminist. She wants to give Dinah more of a personality and a purpose because she just says that Dinah is uh, probably someone who has been... She says, I wouldn't call it mishandled as much as underutilized. So she just feels like she's always been in Green Arrow's shadow. She hasn't really struck out on her own. So I'm curious, Michael, you know, obviously you're a resident DC expert. Where do you fall on Black Canary? Where is the most iconic version of that character for you? I love Black Canary as a character. I really do. 
I mean, there's a lot of different versions of her. There's actually, have you ever read the Justice League International one? No, I've always wanted to, but I've never gotten into that book. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably her most significant role. In the mid 2000s, she became the, the chief or the president of the Justice League at one point. Honestly, the best story arcs for her were right around the green arrow rebirth time when uh when green arrow comes back and then there's a whole run with judd winnick and uh, he does a green arrow and, and canary love story that leads to their their wedding which then got like you know retconned and new 52 and whatever but she's one of my favorite characters because though she does have powers because she trained with wildcat and the justice society she's just as good hand-to-hand combat and she only needs to use her canary cry when it's absolutely necessary and i find that kind of cool like she can defend herself and stand her own ground against all kinds of heroes without using her power wasn't she also a founding member of the birds of prey the titular bird and birds of prey <laughs> yes she was she was she's 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 fallen into a lot of different you know team-ups like you know birds of prey definitely she was you know one of the founding members of that she's popped into justice society several times here and there and the justice league the kevin smith run on green arrow as well as the judd winnick run are all really good stuff with her in it as well so this is the last thing i'll mention from this article which i found interesting because people might think of black canary as kind of a just mainly a sexualized character because as they mention here some would say that black canary's costume a combination of leather and fishnet stockings along with a blonde wig could never be tolerated by a female writer let alone a female character but biome sees dinah's use of the costume as a deliberately feminist act one in which she uses her own sexuality to establish authority rather than when the exploitation is performed by males this is going to be an anti-feminist party line she begins the difference with what i want to do with dinah and i want to change her costume gradually but not radically over the years is what i see is the difference between marilyn monroe and madonna female sexuality is something that can be an extremely powerful thing there's something in Powering about taking the thing that was used to exploit women and turn it into something that grants you power yourself. So Black Canary uses her costume at this point for two reasons. First, out of respect for her mother, the original Golden Age Black Canary, and second, because she takes advantage of the way that people underestimate her because of the way she looks. So there you go. There's the writer at that time taking charge and saying, hey, we could do something with this. Don't look at it that way. Last thing I'll just say, though, so this is where I came in on Black Canary, which is not knowing the character hardly at all so much so as a kid that I remember I had the DC who's who letter B through whatever and I remember seeing her listing there I also didn't know what a canary was you know, as a young <laughs> child, I'd never heard of that bird, so I called her Black Cannery for many years <laughs> when I would read her name somewhere. Oh, yeah, Black Cannery. What, she works at a fish cannery? I don't, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. It's interesting, though, that she mentions the blonde wig because they've retconned that out of continuity at this point. It doesn't even exist anymore. She has blonde hair. She's just her. I go back and forth about her costume and the way it looks. It's... You know, it's one of those books now, you know, having daughters as children. I don't know how I feel about it. I get the empowerment portion of it, but they could have changed it. They've changed other characters' costumes over years. Actually, what they did in New 52 and her costume now makes sense. And the fish nests are are there, but they're kind of like an 
element of the costume and and i i appreciate it more now the one unfortunate thing about black canary is she's one of those characters that they try to give her her own book every so often but it can't sustain long term like it starts out strong but then it kind of dies off really quick and then it ends up getting canceled i've had an idea about that for certain characters like black canary or like supergirl for example or aquaman or even green arrow what DC should do and Marvel should do this as well because they have so many characters is do like six issue miniseries and have a writer and artist team do a, a character for six issues then they go on to another character and then another character and then you kind of like get new stories for these characters so that they keep popping back up every so often but you're not trying to do a 50 issue arc where after issue 25 nobody's buying the book anymore and they end up just sitting on the shelves that would actually be great yeah that's a great way to use characters yeah, that have a, a troubled publication history. But speaking of one who has not had that issue, in the next article here, we have Superman's pal, Jack Larson. And you might be saying, who is Jack Larson? Well, it's an interview with the actor who played Jimmy Olsen on the Adventures of Superman TV series in the 50s. Michael, did you catch this black and white and eventually colorized series on like Nick and Knight or whatever back in the day? Of course I did. Absolutely. As a kid, Do you remember the Christopher Reeve Superman poster where it's just the Superman crest and you see like the red streak across the sky? Do you remember what it said in that poster? You will believe a man can fly? Exactly. And when I found out that this show was on, even though it was black and white, I was like, I got to watch Superman. I got to see a man fly. And it was one of those things that that particular line resonated with me any time a Superman show or movie or or story popped up was like, oh, I could see a man fly on television. And it blew my mind, even though I knew it was fake or whatever. But it was one of those things that just to see it. And just that iconic sound, too, right? The yes. <laughs> the, the wind rushing by. And just the way, like, George Reeves portrayed the character was was so believable. Like, it, it really felt like he embodied Superman in that show, which was very... Very, very cool. And I think a fun fact that maybe people are not aware of is that these days we know Ben Affleck for having recently played Bruce Wayne, a Batman, and the not-so-revered DCEU movies. But Ben Affleck actually played George Reeves. In Hollywoodland. Yeah, in Hollywoodland. Actually, the actor played Superman, so that's kind of fun. But this particular interview is with the guy who played Jimmy Olsen on that show, and I think most people know Mark McClure from the Superman movies, in my Mm. case, Supergirl. He was also in that. He was the big crossover (laughs) from that cast. Oh, the the huge crossover. Yeah, it was, uh, you know. (laughs) Unless you were a big Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, so you preferred either Michael Landis from the first season or Justin Whalen, who played it for the last three seasons. So, whoever your Jimmy Olsen is. But I think the history of Jimmy Olsen is also interesting because, you know, that's the core group, right? If you're going to have a Superman book, you have to have Perry White, you have to have Lois Lane, and you have to have Jimmy Olsen. As long as you have those characters, you feel good. But Jimmy Olsen was originally created for the Superman radio show that was in 1940 and then made his official comics debut after that in 1941. Really? 
Yeah, when I was researching it, Wikipedia claims that he made an unnamed appearance in 1938 in the comics. But I have a feeling that's retconning. Just saying, oh yeah, that guy with the camera over there, that was Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> he also made an unnamed appearance in Batman v Superman, got killed in the first five seconds of the movie. That's movies. right. If you watch the ultimate cut, which I just did recently, he gets a little bit more, but not much. <laughs> uh, but then even... This is what I love about Jimmy Olsen, I feel like. It's like, yes, he's a side character in the Superman comic book, but he had his own series for many years. You know, again, that's where they pulled the title of this article from, right? Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. And he had so many alter egos. Oh, every other issue he got superpowers all the time. Elastic Lad, Giant Turtle Man, and then there's one persona, Flame Bird. What can you tell us? Where did the Flame Bird persona come from, Michael, and how did it influence a future DC character? This is going to get really, really deep. If you know your Superman lore, there are two characters. There is a uh, a Nightwing and a Flame Bird, which is like two heroic characters. And the Nightwing was basically the story behind that is Superman told Dick Grayson about these two characters, Flame Bird and Nightwing. And out of Dick Grayson's respect for Superman, he took the name Nightwing as his mantle when he changed from being Robin. The Flame Bird character, uh, I don't know that much about it. She does appear in um, a Superman book called New Krypton, and they have a whole side story where the action comics run for about 15 issues during that time was Nightwing and Flamebird being the heroes in, in Metropolis, which is a, oh, yeah, about, cool. about as much as my knowledge of Flamebird. Yeah, that, yeah, so that's great. But I, yeah, just, I think it was so interesting, all the different things that Jimmy Olsen went through. And this particular actor, kind of for his era, was the version of Jimmy Olsen that everybody knew. Because that show was so iconic, it even crossed over. I remember when George Reeves was on I Love Lucy as Superman. You know, little Ricky wanted to meet Superman, so Lucy dresses up like Superman. She's out on a ledge, and then Superman shows up. And my understanding is that he's not playing George Reeves in a Superman costume. He was supposed to be actually Superman in that episode. Really? I didn't know Yeah. So that, that was just a little fun piece of trivia. But this Jack Larson guy, he says that he didn't know how big he was because he hadn't really been on TV before. And then he said he would go to get lunch, like at a diner, and kids would just start lining up outside the window, just staring at him, telling each other, that's Jimmy Olsen! They would just <laughs> be so excited to see him. And he, he didn't know how to deal with it initially. And eventually he was just like, wow, you know, you can have that kind of impact on people. So my question also, Michael, for you then is, you know, Jimmy Olsen, I feel like, is always being reinvented. What is the current state of Jimmy Olsen in DC Comics continuity now? Does he even have a presence? He does. They did for a brief stint, and I think it's still running, is they brought back Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen as an actual standalone book where he, oh, go wow. he goes on little adventures and, you know, he's a photographer slash reporter. He still works at the Daily Planet. He still gets yelled at by Perry White all the time. He's still Lois Lane's camera operator. He doesn't really do as much photography as much as he does, like, cinematography now. I know he's supposed to be the character that us kids would connect with because he's a normal guy who's best friends with a superhero, but I never really connected with Jimmy Olsen, other than maybe the the versions on Lois and Clark, but he does appear a lot in the Superman book. Brian Michael Bendis has been sprinkling him throughout both of his books here and there. 
but yeah, that's about it. Yeah, but I feel like ultimately he has that iconic status and he's just like one of those supporting characters that endures. It's the same with like, you know, Batman, you always have to have Alfred. You know, you always have to have Commissioner Gordon. Like I said before, you have Superman. Jimmy Olsen's got to be in the mix somewhere so people feel happy about it. So now let's move on to uh, also the picks from the wizard's hat section here. Just to mention some notable issues that came out. There was a Captain America 400 Excalibur number 50. Big numbers, but I don't necessarily know they were big issues. But one thing that we haven't mentioned up to this point is wizard also made a big deal since the beginning of releasing a list of number one issues coming out that month because as we know number one issues have you know the potential to become very collectible so this month we had warlock number one starring adam warlock we had nomad number one which actually just got a whole run of those nomad books from this era also toxic crusaders number one based on the cartoon series which was based on the very not kid friendly the toxic avenger movie by trauma studios that is not um, a kid friendly movie oh, not stay like away kids- from it it's on amazon prime don't do it <laughs> yeah no but i actually recently came into possession of that issue and several other issues of that series because uh, on my youtube show uh, retro detention on the next episode we're actually featuring toxic crusaders and captain planet merchandise and characters from those shows will be showing up so if you're a 90s kid who's a fan of saving the environment you might want to tune into retro detention on youtube on the retro days youtube page it's very funny thank you and finally madman number one you guys have heard me sing the praises of mike allred madman number one came out from dark horse comics oh actually you know what no this was madman number one released by tundra which was you know the smaller publisher and then eventually the series got picked up by dark horse but there actually is currently a kickstarter just ended as we're recording that i contributed to in order to fund a documentary about the life and career of mike allred who created madman his son is a a filmmaker and is putting that together i can't wait to see it it's probably not going to be out for a year but i will definitely provide my review at that time i'm sure we'll still be talking madman here and there but be very very interesting and you know, if you're reading current comics today, I'm sure you've seen Mike Allred's work, whether it was Silver Surfer or what have you. He just had a big David Bowie comic that came out that was a big deal for Bowie fans. Also in this issue is a new feature. Uh, it's a very short one, but it's called Wizard News. And I find it really interesting because it's essentially uh, just a headline. It looks like the front of a newspaper and it's got a bunch of quick hits. I mean, I guess it'd be considered the print version of clickbait back in of the day you know just giving you ideas as to things that are going on in the world of comics like mark bagley leaves new warriors because it concentrate on the art of amazing spider-man watch bagley closely he's a name in the making which is very true actually he became very important to spider-man for many years he's still important to, to this day yeah and valiant begins a crossover unity number zero will be free this may and june all valiant universe titles will come together into one continuous storyline unity 
says Frank Miller will supply the artwork for the covers to the first eight of the 16 issues that encompass this summer's crossover epic from Valiant Comics. So there's actually a few more quick hits we're going to get in and into in some of our later segments, but I just thought it's really nice to just kind of see a bunch of things that'll spark your imagination. Wizard news. Then in Pat McCallum's column about collecting comics in the 90s, I thought it was interesting because he's sort of mentioned this before in the past, but he's basically dismissing the idea that polybagged comics should be more valuable than the actual book that is inside them, that you need to keep them in the plastic. Because uh, he talks about, he's like, you got these kids going to comic book shows and they're getting Rob Liefeld to sign a bag. He made the book. He didn't make the bag. <laughs> like That's his argument. But I don't know that that holds up. I'm pretty sure most people are wanting a complete, yes, I have my trading cards inside this copy of X-Force number one. The next article is A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Beginning, which is... An interview with Andy Mangles, yes, Wizard's own movie columnist, who is writing this book from Innovation Comics, which is an in-depth telling of Freddy Krueger's origin story, now that the character had officially been killed off by New Line Cinema in Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, they said it, this is the only place you'll get official Freddy Krueger stories. And I just thought it was interesting. Number one, Andy Mangles, who's been giving us our Hollywood Heroes section, I didn't know he was a writer like of fiction, but now you understand, I guess that was his connection. Because they actually said in the article, he was involved with New Line Cinema. They did this big media blitz. They did a, a fake funeral for Freddy Krueger that was on the news. And Andy Mangles, he is the one who provided the obituary for Freddy Krueger at that event. So I thought that was interesting. So this particular series i was looking it up on ebay i mean you know the issues still go for like 15 bucks so you know horror fans are very dedicated and so you really can you know count on that to endure i've not read a lot of nightmare on elm street comics but i do think that that was interesting that they were just gonna say yep here's the definitive version of freddy and then eventually we'd get new nightmare but that was a whole different meta continuity that wasn't related and then freddy versus jason again still its own self-contained world so for you horror fans out there if you've read this book let us know i'd be curious to find out what the finer points of freddy's origin were speaking of points maybe on the back end uh, how's that for a segue (laughs) this next article is titled agents and this is very interesting because when you talk about these top creators right now especially this group that's breaking off to form image the artists of the day were rock stars they were huge and a very big deal and the reason the image even got started is that the publishers were not treating them that way or even giving them any sort of due according to these you know creative types they're like we're doing amazing work and we're still just like getting a paycheck like we mean nothing to them even though we're selling eight million issues of a comic and so this is about a guy named mike friedrich who started a firm called star reach productions to represent comic book artists writers just people involved in the business but what's interesting is he's not just like some lawyer or somebody who you know came at it from the outside he started out as a writer for marvel he actually co-created thanos with jim starlin really yeah he's a name you do not hear you always hear jim starlin oh yeah every cosmic marvel book it's always about jim starlin apparently mike friedrich was right there he also wrote 
Batman for DC and Green Lantern in like the 60s and 70s. Then he started his own publishing company. It was a comics magazine called Star Reach, where his company got its name. He said he only really published a few issues, but he had some fairly big names working on it. But he eventually then got into the business side. He helped Marvel set up their direct sales program to comic book stores in the 80s. So not just getting stuff on newsstands direct to the comic book retailer. And now he was representing these artists and writers. So I just thought it was interesting because his whole point is, look, you have these guys who are not business people. You know, they're creative minds and they're great at what they do, but they're getting taken advantage of. So I'm not taking advantage of them. I get my percentage, but no funny business because I know what it's like. And so I'm just trying to get them a fair deal. So I thought it was interesting that the industry had evolved so far at this point. It was such a moneymaker that you had to have an agent. Well, I mean, that part doesn't surprise me that that they would need an agent because, I mean, I'm sure Jim Lee in particular had an agent and and, uh, McFarlane had an agent. But I think the most interesting part about it is that this guy made an agency that focused on supporting the comic book artists as opposed to, you know, going to one of the other agencies that that mostly focus on actors and producers and, and filmmaking types to have an agency that was focused on writers and artists of, of comics that's i think that's the most significant part of this article is the fact that this guy created this and this is where it stems from which is pretty cool yeah and and some of them were even like indie creators people like paul chadwick who created concrete he mentioned was a client norm brayfogle who we've talked about big artist over in the batman books so he definitely you know was reaching out to people on all sides of the spectrum next up was palmer's pick there's always something interesting in these articles, things that are kind of outside the realm of mainstream comics. And in this particular issue, he's focusing on independent black and white comedy comics by people like Peter Baggy and Drew Friedman and Doug Allen. I only know Peter Baggy because he did some work in the Strange Tales anthology books by Marvel about, I think they came out like 10 years ago or something. And I love those books. They're just really like indie humor style, grotesque versions of your favorite characters and putting them in funny situations. This feels to me like this was an era of people like R. Crumb and Harvey Kurtzman from Mad Magazine. Like, this was like a 60s, 70s thing that was very big, and then I think as, you know, mainstream superhero comics became even more of a literary form when you had people like Alan Moore or Frank Miller, then, like, the underground comedy comics just kind of dissipated because there was that boom of creator-owned titles in the 80s that we are not familiar with, but I have like a documentary called Comic Book Confidential, and it's a documentary with all these artists who you're kind of like, okay, they did some big things for them, but then that bubble burst. Have you ever found yourself getting into these kind of underground comics, Michael? No. Mainly because growing up, whenever I said, oh, I I like to read comics, people who didn't understand the difference between a comic strip in the back of a newspaper and a comic book, they'd always associate, oh, you read like Archie or you read like Garfield or I'm like, no, I don't read Garfield. I read Batman. Oh, (laughs) where's Batman? I'm like, he's not in the newspaper, dude. Like he's in a comic book store. And I never got into those kind of things because those comedy comics or comic strips you'd see, 
yeah, I'd read them on Sunday mornings because it was silly and it was art. Snoopy was in there. I mean, because it's one of those things where, like, there's a certain level of indie comic that I might be interested in. Something like Love and Rockets. Like, I think that's a very cool book. Like, the Hernandez brothers, the stuff they do is always very interesting. But these weird comics, I feel like they are the domain of college students for a few years who are experimenting with drugs and they think they're super, you know, deep and heady and, yeah, these comics, they're breaking down the walls. I remember meeting a guy once, a neighbor, and I went over to his house. He's like, oh yeah, I'm into comics too. I'm actually producing a comic right now. And so he showed me his pages. Like, he was the writer. His buddy was the artist. His wife was totally over it. She was so tired of hearing about it. <laughs> and he was so proud of himself. So I'm looking at these pages. And he's like, you see this here? And I was like, wow, he thinks he's funny. Okay. Yeah. Comedy itself is so subjective. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, to really catch on with those. And the only time I've ever come upon them is if I've ever just inherited a huge lot of books and then I've looked at them. I mean, there's a reason this probably only made it to issue two. You know, like you self-publish it, then you're done because nobody wanted to carry it. In regards to like indie, like comedy comics, the only thing that I was just thinking about it, the only thing that I ever read a little bit of and it was only because of the movie was Scott Pilgrim. I picked up a little bit after the movie came out and I wanted to learn a little bit my friend was like oh you gotta read scott pilgrim the books are so much better than the movie it was cool it was interesting but it wasn't like my my thing and you made you made a very good point in saying that you know comedy is really subjective right now i'm in the process of writing a web series comedy and i've written the first two episodes and it's only six or eight minutes long and it's very hard to be funny like you have to write it in a way that you got to envision somebody that's going to be the actor or character that's going to portray that and how they would deliver those lines. But to write it funny and have other people read it, you're like, I think it's funny, but do you? And, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's, it's a very challenging craft. And if you're a good comedy writer, you've got a gift. I'll tell you that much. It's, it's tough. I mean, like the closest I get is somebody like Evan Dorkin. I know one of our listeners and friends of the show, Sean Robert loves Evan Dorkin comics, you know, whether it was Milk and Cheese or, you know, he did the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures series for Marvel and things like that. His stuff is like really wild and wacky, but he's, he's got a good flavor to him. But yeah, it's much easier to do something more dramatic. Like if you go to Mouse, this critically acclaimed series about, you know, Nazis with mice and cats and stuff. You can get away with stuff there. Whereas I think, yeah, just comedy, you're not going to get as much leeway. We have the amazing artist section, which is more wizard fan art covers. The one thing I noticed in looking at all this, this is a problem of the era in general, but proportions seem to be the biggest issue that the people are struggling with because all the characters characters are very stocky and i think they're trying to fit the entire body of the character beneath the wizard logo on the cover mm-hmm. and I, so i think they're shortening you know the legs of the arms and it makes everybody look really weird is there any particular piece of art in this that stood out to you michael i mean the lobo one is very very good I think the Wolverine is probably the best, but it's not the full body, which is pretty good. The mask one is very interesting because it's it's something you wouldn't normally see. Yeah, the mask hadn't had a movie yet. Yeah, I I look at a lot of these and I mean, listen, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler and (laughs) to to, to see artists draw like this is, is beautiful. But 
looking at it at 2020 eyes, I'm like, man, if these guys had Photoshop back then, what they could have done, really, they would have been amazing. I mean, my favorite overall is just there is a black costume Spider-Man shredding on an electric guitar that's just, like, got all these edges jutting out of it and the body of the guitar. That's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's got all these, like, energy lines coming off it. So anytime you put black costume Spider-Man in something, you're going to win me over. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that does it for our table of contents. All right. Let's load up our truck full of artillery for the Punisher's Price Guide. This month, we have Strange Tales, number 178, the first appearance of Adam Warlock from 1975. Wizard is pretty convinced this book will be a big deal due to the Infinity War miniseries due out in the summer of 92, and Warlock and the Infinity Watch ongoing title. Yeah, and what they say here, it's it's in the Wizards Comics Watch section. I just think this is interesting. They they mention up top, they say, hey, wait a minute. That book already sells for 20 bucks. Why should I buy it now? Two reasons. First, it's the debut of the Adam Warlock series in this title, riding a wave of popularity from his appearance in the Infinity Gauntlet, and now his own monthly title. Warlock is showing great promise to join the ranks of Marvel's superstars. So what do you think about that, Michael? Do you feel like he is a major Marvel character? No. His most notable appearance is the Infinity Gauntlet and Infinity War, a character that was created in a bygone era that has a huge power set and is kind of an interesting looking character, but they never know what to do with him. And they throw, oh, you know what? We're going to have a big galactic event. Throw him in there. So... It's kind of funny because we had the 20 some odd movies of the Marvel franchise, which they called the Infinity Saga and they called, you know, Infinity War. But Infinity War as a miniseries is terrible in comparison to Infinity Gauntlet, which the Thanos story that you see in the Avengers movies is really based on. And Adam Warlock plays a significant role in Infinity Gauntlet. I read the first one or two issues of Infinity War and dumped it because I was like, ah, this is not something I'm interested in. And they're like, oh, he's such a big deal. But he's not. He's just kind of a guy that shows up here and there. So in 1992, the book was listed at a value of $25. And it is currently selling on eBay for an average of $27, either graded or ungraded. So it really hasn't moved much in 28 years. So the character of Adam Warlock was teased in the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which should have helped the book boost a little bit of its sales or its value. And with James Gunn just now finishing up uh, the Suicide Squad sequel for Warner Brothers, and then he's going to be going back to the MCU to do the next uh, installment of Guardians of the Galaxy. One would hope that Adam Warlock will appear in that movie because it was teased, and I thought it was going to be a tease that you'd see him in the Infinity Saga, but I guess, you know, they, they just kind of 
it was a throwaway teaser for a much longer build. We shall see. So for right now, because it is up in value only by $2, we're going to classify Strange Tales number 178 as a firestorm, which has the potential to be bigger if he becomes a big deal in the MCU. Speaking of comic book movies in particular, let's move on to Heroes in Motion. Wizard News uh, section has a small section about a Venom movie starring, believe it or not, Charlie Sheen. Tiger blood. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Winning. You, you stole the words out of my mouth. I don't even know what to think about that. I'm like, Charlie Sheen. Of course, Sheen. back in the day, he, he hadn't quite gone off the deep end, you know? But he was still kind of nuts. I think that was the point, right? They're just like, oh, this guy is unstable. He'd yeah. be perfect for Eddie Brock. Those kind of characters back then, they didn't have the money or the CGI to make them look legitimate. And it's like, how would you would have made him look big and look like a Venom character? And it would have gotten chewed up in some sort of messy amalgam and it would look weird. And I, I'm glad it didn't happen till when it did. I still have mixed feelings about the Venom movie that came out, but I can't see Charlie Sheen as Venom. Must have been po- mostly a passing rumor of the day since the earliest reports we found go back to 1997 when David S. Goyer had written a script for a Venom film, which was to be produced by New Line Cinema with Dolph Lundgren. In- oh, how do you feel about Dolph as Venom? Oh, man, I mean, size-wise, sure, he's great. <laughs> I feel like that was 100%. They just looked at his flat top in Rocky Four, and they said, oh, yeah, Eddie oh, Brock yeah. has a flat top. He's blonde. He's okay. perfect, yeah. He's big. He could do it. Perfect. Sign him up. This would have been a feature film, and the main antagonist would have been Carnage. How interesting. Which is interesting because... Carnage is the, like, spawn or offshoot of Venom. So you would have had to assume that Dolph Lundgren would have been Venom at the start of the film, and Carnage would have appeared not long after and became the main villain of that movie, which is kind of interesting. On this Wizard News page, they have a little topic about Terminator 3. Yes. And so the funny thing about it is it's a movie that this version for which they're talking about it's two t-800s one being a female terminator ultimately t3 when it did come out many 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 years later and it's another not so great sequel of the terminator franchise but it was a female terminator and they they basically said that in this thing is another t-800 Sounds nifty to us, but after all the the special effects roller coaster of T2, it might be a little bland if it's the same type of Terminator fighting each other. It's interesting that they even touched on it at this point, because were they even, like, 
talking about T3 at that time? Well, they had to be. I mean, I think T2 was such a monster hit. I'm sure they were trying to get James Cameron to come back, but I bet he just wasn't interested at that point. I'm sure he said, I just made a massive movie. I can do whatever I want, and I don't really want to stay with the Terminator. And so I think it's interesting that, yeah, they basically, it looks like they held on to that concept for years, years until they could actually get it made and get at least Arnold to sign on, not James Cameron. Yeah. So now they're, they're talking about, there's an article regarding Alien and three movie scripts, not really a comic book movie, even though Dark Horse did publish many Aliens comic book series. Alien's one of those movies that, like, even though it, it didn't start as a comic book thing, it, it ties so closely to a lot of comic book fans and the horror aspect and the sci-fi. And yes, there have been a ton of comics that are aliens and aliens versus predator and so on and so forth. I've never been a big aliens fan myself. I, I appreciate the first two movies. I've seen a few of the other ones here and there. It was not my thing, mostly because it kind of like terrified me. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing Prometheus because everyone was like saying, oh, this is going to reboot the Alien franchise. And, you know, it's going to be amazing. And I was like, yeah, it started out good. It could have gone better. It went a weird direction. Um, what's your thoughts on Aliens? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, this in particular, they're talking about these rejected scripts for Alien 3. And I feel like I remember this movie being promoted so heavily. How oh, many backs heavily. of comic books had Alien 3, the video game, on them? They wanted you to buy that for your Sega or for your Super Nintendo. I mean, it was just like, get your Alien 3 video game. I had not seen any Alien movies. I saw like 15 minutes of Aliens at a friend's house at this point when I was in like sixth grade. And I was like this is intense you know oh yeah but it's it's one of those things where i hadn't watched alien 3 but i've had a copy of it for a while so this week i watched it when i read this article about all these rejected scripts and i was like wow you know it's not fun Alien 3. No, it is not it, fun. it is a bummer of a movie, and it is not interesting. There are no interesting characters. Two cool moments, and one of them was, like, in the trailer, just where the alien is up right on Ripley's face. She's, like, turning away in disgust. And then the ending, when Ripley meets her fate. And so, yeah, this is what was interesting to me, because this is that whole era of... And I think this had a lot to do with T2, you know, with Terminator 2 Judgment Day, because they released action figures for that trailer cards that was marketed at kids and they tried to do the same thing for aliens kenner came out at this time with an awesome aliens action figure line and i had a bunch of those figures but they were all based on aliens not alien 3 because then you just have a bunch of bald british action figure guys and a bald ripley and one alien there's a one alien in this movie but i loved the figures so much they even planned a saturday morning cartoon series i remember that and i didn't remember the action, the action figures didn't they have like a alien action figure that was kind of like larger than all the rest of the toys as well well they did i mean they had a queen and they had like everything because they had like you know bull alien and gorilla alien and they had like so many different ones my personal favorite figure was because they had like hicks and ripley and apone and like all the characters from the movie but then they created a new one called atax he was dressed like a xenomorph so he could infiltrate the hive and destroy them mm. and i still have that figure on my shelf to this day. But yeah, the thing I'd always heard over the years was David Fincher, who was the director, had like a disagreement with the studio and they essentially took the film away from him and recut it. Yeah. 
I do remember this. So I have a you know, feeling that his original version would have been cool. And any of these rejected scripts would have been much more interesting if they had gone with them. You know, just like Aliens on Earth, which we kind of got eventually with that Alien versus Predator Requiem film. And they had, like, different aliens. This Because, again, this one uses one dog alien. But they were talking about here, They had a, there was a script that had a pig alien, a pit bull alien, cat aliens, chicken aliens. <laughs> yeah, like... A whole farm of aliens. Oh, man. And Ripley's the farmer on the farm. (laughs) (laughs) We've said enough about aliens at this point. I'm going to have nightmares tonight. (laughs) Time to move on to Rob and Todd's Hype Machine. So, Wizard News has a headline for... Hot artist to sign at Malibu Comics, noting only Rob, Todd, and Jim showing that the image concept is not totally explained yet to the public. And they talk about Youngblood number one is still the only minor mention in the Market Watch sections. Apparently, not a breakout book upon its release from the previous month. Yeah, so they just kind of like, you know, they're saying, oh, you know, Youngblood 2 is coming out this month, and they mentioned the Youngblood 1 is out, so it's probably a big deal, but there wasn't a fully formed understanding. Like, oh, how big is this? Because, I mean, like we said in that Wills Portacio interview, they mentioned Liefeld, they mentioned McFarlane, so everybody knew that those two and Jim Lee were creating their own books, but I don't think they knew how widespread this exodus from Marvel was going to be. So, at this point, there's still not a lot going Going on, like they're just like, well, mention it's happening, but nobody is ranting and say you gotta get it, you gotta get it. So with this issue, though, for some reason, despite that, Rob gets ten mentions in this issue. Todd only gets two, which gives a huge boost to Rob, who was trailing you know at the beginning of this the show. So now Rob, in our cumulative total, has. 35 mentions and Todd is at 26 and I don't know we're, we're gonna see if Todd is gonna be able to catch up here I, I have to say just I don't know why they're mentioned so much and particularly Rob like why I, I wonder if their agents are like throwing money to just throw their names in the book throw their names in the magazine I don't think they had to campaign. I think literally, like, people were so rabid for what they had done. Like, Jim Lee, everybody's like, Jim Lee is just an artist. He's perfection. We love him. But Rob and Todd were the hype. That's why they have their own section on the show. I mean, they were the people, like, people just couldn't get enough. Anything that had to do with them, people were excited. So I just feel like the general public wanted more of what they were selling at that time because it was so different. Uh I'm interested to see what happens when Spawn comes out, how, how the shift happens then. That's, I, think that, I think that's where the real tides are going to turn for Todd as when Spawn drops, I think. Now, moving on to Robin's Reading Rainbow, we're going to discuss X-Men number eight. Bishop getting familiar with the X-Mansion and the group blowing off his accusation that Gambit is the X-Traitor so that they can 
have a picnic and lounge in their swimsuits? <laughs> this issue, we, we picked it because it was the issue coming out this month of X-Men, and it featured Bishop, who was on the cover. And like I said, Michael, I know you collected a few of these books during the heyday. I was not reading them, so I really didn't know the storylines in here. And this is like some interesting stuff, because I mean, it opens with Wolverine just on a computer trying to access some, you know, sealed files about himself, and he can't get any answers. Meanwhile, Bishop is the new guy on the team and he is just like awestruck by meeting his heroes everything he says is like wow you know you are the legendary cyclop you know he talks to beast he's like oh you were one of the great philosophers of my time the one to me which they call out right away is he says jubilee was the last x-man and then gambit's like oh yeah then what are you And so then he and Gambit get into it because all of a sudden, I, I guess, I, I again, because I wasn't reading those issues where Bishop first showed up, he must have some sort of amnesia and he gets like little flashes of his history back because it's just like, it seems like as soon as he sees Gambit and he hears the name, he's like, oh, you, you are the X-Trainer. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is going on here? What did you think about that as far as creating that mystery? and Bishop's presentation of the knowledge that he had, Michael. I thought it was kind of cool because back in the 90s, I didn't read this particular issue or when he was on the book for a while at all. The first appearance that I'd ever remembered of Bishop was on the animated series. And and then when I read this issue and about the ex-trader part and Gambit, I was like, didn't they do the exact same story in the series as well? They did. I was just watching it the other night. It's not quite as intense. No, it's not as intense at all. Because in, in the TV series, he's kind of like at odds with, with Cable, but then he sees Gambit and he freaks out. And I don't think he has the memory issues in the TV series that he did in the book, which I think is a, is a good character trait that he's kind of like fragmented time you know memories and stuff like that which is kind of cool well and it's funny because he demands that professor x size scan gambit's thoughts and gene gray comes in she's like hate to sound insensitive to the needs of the chronologically displaced but can we discuss this over our previously scheduled picnic <laughs> Bishop's like, picnic! I inform you of your impending deaths at the hands of a traitor, and you suggest a picnic? (laughs) If they had translated that to the animated series, that would be like a meme right now. Oh, big time. You know, the juggernaut meme from the animated series. Then Professor X says, yes, we do our best thinking on full stomachs. I'm like, what? And so they just cut to them swimming, and you got Psylocke seems to be seducing Scott while he's trying to have a conversation with Jean. (laughs) And she gets super mad, and he can't keep his eyes off Psylocke. Well, anybody with psychic powers can seduce Cyclops. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then in the meantime, Bishop and Gambit get in a big fight. They're literally like punching each other, of course, because you can't have a superhero book and not have some disagreement, even at a friendly picnic. So yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those issues where I'm kind of like, ultimately, it should have just been a talking issue. They were just trying to get a bunch of information and plant seeds about who is the ex-trader, what's going to be done about it, but they had to add in this kind of ridiculous fight, which ends with Rogue made a pie for Gambit, and while they're fighting, they blast the pie into her face. 
And so she freaks out, and that makes them laugh. Because Rogue is so mad that they ruined her pie. Now they're friends. Did you ever watch Community? Oh, I love Community. I've been re-watching it. That uh, is one of my favorite series ever. I, yes. love, I love that show. You know Abed from that show? Yes. So there's an episode where they, they call, call it the bottle episode. And they basically explain what a bottle episode is where... It's an episode where it's a very low budget thing and not a lot happens and they're kind of like stuck in a room or whatever. I felt like this was one of those issues where it was like almost like a bottle episode issue because it's like not a lot happens. The drama is a little all over the place, a fight for no reason where you're right. It should have been more of a building of drama that it like leads into something bigger in a future episode and instead it ends in this like cheesy pie-in-the-face gag, and I'm like, ugh. Then they just spend a few panels with this character that all of a sudden comes in, and she, like, says she's there for Remy LeBeau. Now Bishop is defending Gambit, and he's like, hey, that's no way to treat a lady, monsieur, especially when that lady is my wife. You're what? (laughs) This is where you start getting the big understanding about there's like the Assassin's Guild and the Thieves Guild and there's this Belladonna. And so by them getting married, that was going to bring their two sides together. And apparently that didn't work out. So now they have to go back to the bayou, essentially go back to New Orleans and they're going to check out what is going on there. And so all the X-Men decide they're going to come along and join in. So that's going to be the next issue. But what's interesting is then on the cover of this issue, it says, you know, at a special appearance by Ghost Rider. So now we're like 20 pages in and we're like, where's Ghost Rider? Like, what did he have to do with this? So there's just like now a couple pages down in, in New Orleans and all of a sudden there's like this Cajun style cop and Ghost Rider comes flying by on his motorcycle and then it just says to be continued to Ghost Rider number 26. <laughs> and then I looked it up and the X-Men are guest stars in that issue. But it was a really cheap way to get people to buy it if you were a Ghost Rider completist because you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to get Ghost Rider fighting the X-Men? Not yet. I hate when they do that. Oh, it's a throwaway thing. And it's like, one panel or two panels and you see it's like and it's over i'm like really that's so lame but what did you think in general jim lee's art any criticism i mean it was it was his style for the time i wasn't overly impressed with it like i feel like it was some of his some the earlier issues one of the first couple issues were so amazing It, it just felt like okay yeah i mean overall like you said standard fare for him but i did like some of the panel layouts and just like the page construction for example you know, normally, if you're going to do a flashback exposition, it can be kind of boring. But in this case, he's got like a full page, full body shot of Gambit superimposed over a close up of Gambit's head. And then inside Gambit's head are these panels that are telling the story of how he married Belladonna. And so I think there's some, a few creative layout choices. But overall, because the fighting is so ridiculous, it's like for a stupid reason, 
it's less exciting to see. This is happening, but I think they're being a little bit overdramatic. Yeah, it, wa- it was a little overdramatic. And I, all right, let's just get to the point. Yeah, there were some cute little silly jokes and everything, and it was just, but I wasn't like enthralled with the story to, to say, oh, I got to get to the end of this and, and know what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, the only thing I'll say that would have been helpful if I had read this issue back in the day is later on, there is a rogue miniseries that came out, I think around like 94. And I remember picking up those issues and it deals all with the thieves and the Assassin's Guild and Belladonna's and that. And so it really digs into all this Gambit backstory stuff. So had I seen it here first, maybe I would have been a little bit more involved when I was reading all that. All right. Well, let's move on quickly to Azrael's action figure fury. This is really fun because in this issue, Brian Cunningham is laying out what ultimately becomes a feature that is monthly. It's kind of a contest that Wizard would run called homemade heroes that involved customizing your action figures and this is definitely the origin of that because he starts off saying come here i've got something that you don't want to know what it is well okay it's a u.s agent action figure you're probably thinking what they made one and i didn't know about it stay calm they didn't really actually i made it okay i'm lying pat mccallum made it because he's such a swell guy just think who does u.s agent look like captain america right a captain America is sold in every major toy store in America, right? All you have to do is buy one cap figure, or in my case, two or three, because I'm destined to mess up at least once, paint over it, and whammo, you've got yourself a peachy U.S. agent figure. Not bad, eh? So this whole article, he goes into all these ideas for what you could do to customize figures. Okay, you can use model paints, you can use Sculpty, you can use all these different things. And so what I find hilarious, though, is that the idea is sparked by having a co-worker repaint a Toy Biz Captain America to be a U.S. agent, which is exactly what Toy Biz did just a few months later that year to sell more toys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they just used the same mold and repainted it, and now you had a Toy is Captain America and a Toy Biz US agent, which I had both of. That was a shameless practice that Toy Biz did for many years. Because later on, they had a line, I think it was just called Marvel Universe, and then like Marvel Hall of Fame that was at KB Toys, and they would like repaint, you know, a rogue figure, and now it's Polaris. They would just do that over and over again. But I'm curious for you, Michael, did you ever get into customizing action figures? Did you ever have like a dream figure and you're like, I guess I'm going to have to make it? Not as a kid, no. When I started collecting hot toys, though, I did start create like making my own one twelfth scale figures, where I would go on eBay and I'd buy you know body sculpts of a one twelfth size figure and different head sculpts. And I, I made a, a black canary. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not the greatest, but it's I used. <laughs> I, I found like the head of baby from uh, sucker punch i made a couple other different characters but nothing i was really like oh my goodness this is awesome so you're just getting bits and pieces and then putting them together yeah and, huh yeah it was cool because what you're saying is it's cheaper to buy just the parts that people are selling miscellaneous pieces of a body let's put it this way i, I could spend 45 or 50 dollars to make my own 112 scale figure or 400 dollars on a hot toys figure <laughs> so you know 
I, I tried that for a little while, and uh, it made a couple characters, and it was cool. It was kind of fun to make. I made a Catwoman at one point. A couple. Oh, different. nice. Yeah, see, I did do some customizing back in the day, specifically related to homemade heroes, but I am going to hold off on that story until the official feature presents itself in the magazine. However, what I did do, because as I mentioned before, I would create a lot of my own superheroes and characters which obviously there was never going to be an action figure for. So I would take my action figures and create my superheroes out of them because I was like that deep into it. It's going to be my whole thing. I make a comic, I make the toys, I make a movie with the action figures. So I had a lot of fun doing stuff like that. In particular, I had a character who was called Ultimate Granite. And he was basically like, if you have ever seen the old Thing cartoon, not Fantastic Four, but when there was a Thing cartoon, Thing Ring, do your thing! And he would smash his rings together, and then rocks would appear around this kid. He would turn into a rock monster, the Thing. So I created Ultimate Granite from a dream that I had, where that happened to me, and I was in junior high in gym class, and I was getting picked on, and then I was Ultimate Granite, engage! And then (laughs) rocks formed around me, and I had a boulder fist that I could smash all the bullies with. Anyway, he became part of a team of heroes called Tryon Squad. One. That's hilarious. <laughs> there was Sisect, Ultimate Granite, and Illusion Man. And so I took all like figures for a lot of different lines and I created my own. Like I took Maul from Jim Lee's Wildcats with sculpt clay on his head and then on his hand to make a fist, he became Ultimate Granite. There was a wannabe Snake Eyes character called Black Dragon from a short lived Hasbro toy line called G.I. Joe Extreme that I repainted as Illusion Man. And then I bought a masked rider action figure and just left him as is, since Sisect is pretty much just a Cayman Rider ripoff. You guys don't know who Sisect is, but I do. And that was my Tryon Squad 1 action figure group. And in fact, I ended up filming a mini-movie on the family camcorder with those figures, basically a pilot episode for an animated series of <laughs> Tryon Squad 1. And I will upload a clip from that to our social media, because I have no shame. So that's that was my first foray into customizing action figures. So, thinking about it now, the only thing that I ever really did customizing, and we've talked about this um, a couple episodes ago uh, when we talked about our action figures, is you had mentioned the Michael Keaton Batman that came with Michael Keaton and the pieces that attached to make him into the bat suit. I used to take those pieces and put them on the Robin figure as if, like, I'd pretend like Michael Keaton had gotten killed or retired as Batman, and Robin picked up the mantle, but he kind of blended the bat suit and the Robin suit together. Oh, that's cool, like, yeah. That. An Elseworlds tale with your action figures. Exactly. And... Um, <laughs> I was a bit, this is going to sound really funny. I was a big fan of mixing genres. So I would do things as a kid where I had all the Ghostbusters characters and they would team up with like He-Man because Slimer and Skeletor were like attacking the city and they had to partner together and they would ride around in the Ecto-1 and fight each, fight off uh, Skeletor. That's awesome. I would do stuff like that, which was kind of fun. <laughs> it was like, you know, and, and like Battle Cat would appear on top of, of Ecto-1. It was really funny. It was that was stuff I used to do with like mixing of, but I never really like tinkered with my characters because basically I can't paint and I would have ruined them and I would have bothered me. Yeah, that's cool though. That's very fun. So yeah, I, I guess I'm looking forward 
forward to when Homemade Heroes makes its debut in Wizard, because that was always one of my favorite sections when I'd get a new issue. All right, well, as we end the show, I think it's only fair that we bring back an old segment we haven't visited in a while. It's kind of our free-form discussion, asking each other questions. It's called, What the... Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those melodramatic fools Neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it all right, Michael. So I have a question for you. This has been on my mind, and that is strange ways that people store their comics. I mean, as you've told us, you got 16 long boxes in your house. I got a nice sack of long boxes as well. And that is kind of the traditional way to collect comics, bagged, boarded, in a box. Now, I had a friend growing up. And he's actually the guy who introduced me to Darkhawk. I had never known about Darkhawk, but that was his favorite character, a guy named Andy, who lived across the street from me. And when I went to his house, he showed me Darkhawk comics, but they were in plastic, three-hole-punched binder sleeves in a binder. Hmm. And that is how he stored his comics, was in a three-ring binder. And I was wondering if you had ever seen anything like that, or if you know of any other weird, unorthodox ways of storing your collection of comics. Well, you've come to the right place, my friend, because I, too, had a binder with three hole-punched comics. Before I knew that you could buy long boxes, I had a binder. It was a black binder with like a superhero logo. I might even have the binder still somewhere in my basement if I didn't throw it away when I moved everything over to long boxes. But yes, I had them. And I was really particular about it because the, when I bought the binder itself, it had a clear front, but it had a black back to the sleeve. And I would... I constantly needed to buy new ones because it only came with like maybe 10 sleeves. So I'd have to go to the comic book store and I had to go from place to place to try to find the right sleeves. I didn't want like some to be a white back, some to be a black back. I wanted it to be the same. I was really particular about it till the book got so full that I was like, I needed to buy a box. But I only, but it only fit maybe about 25 or, or 30 comics at the time. And I'm like, I'm not going to take this and put it in a box that needs 150 books or more. So, and I still do this to this day. Until a box gets about three quarters of the way full, I lay it on the the narrow side down and I stack it up so that the books don't lean over inside the box and get warped. Very interesting. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I could definitely see that, yeah, because just the weight when, you know, when books tip over or something happens. But that is so crazy that you actually had the binder. I, I wonder if that is just something that comes out of, like, collecting trading cards at a certain point. So you're just like, oh, yeah, you keep your stuff in a binder because, you, yeah, like you said, you don't know about the long box concept. But I'm very curious for our listeners to tell us, or did you always keep your comics in a long box or did you do the binder thing? So make sure when you hear this uh, episode, tell us, are you part of the hashtag Longbox Legion or hashtag Binder Brigade? <laughs> All right, and we'll see who wins. That's pretty funny. That was good. I like that. So I've got a what, though, that I've been thinking about. I know you're a big advocate of going to thrift stores and yard sales and, and finding, you know, buried treasure, so to speak. 
what was it doesn't have to be your first, but what was like your biggest find when you were younger? Like when you saw this thing, you were like, Mom, I have to get this. What was one of those things that you're like, ah, my holy grail kind of a moment? <laughs> well, yeah, see, so I was raised garage sailing. My mom loved a garage sale. You know, as a kid, I would go and when I would be able to find toys, like you actually brought up one of my biggest earlier that you had that you got out of the box, but that was the Kenner Real Ghostbusters Ecto-1. So I got that at a garage sale and I got the firehouse. Really? I didn't have the firehouse. The firehouse was awesome. Yeah, and so that was a big, big deal to me because I, you know, I had a handful of real Ghostbusters figures. In fact, I had more of the ghosts than I had the Ghostbusters themselves and a few of the vehicles and things like that. But I never had the big ones, and the Ecto-1 and the Firehouse were that for me. So when I saw those for like five bucks at a garage sale in 1990, 91 or something like that was a huge deal for me. And to follow that up, so... Last year, I was at our local thrift store that I go to, you know, a couple times a week, and they don't ever have action figures. I don't know what it is. There's no Nintendo games. There's no action figures. It just doesn't seem to come up. I mean, they have like modern day toys that kids of, you know, two years ago are discarding now, but very hard to find the vintage stuff. And one day I walk in, you know, I've got a few VHS tapes and then I walk up to the counter and I see they're sorting stuff behind there. And there is the Ghostbusters firehouse just sitting there. And I'm like, uh, how much is that? They're like a dollar. I was like, thank you. A dollar? I got it for a buck. Wow. And it was the glorious day, you know, because I had long since lost my firehouse that I got at the garage sale. And then now I had it again in my possession for a buck. And, you know, obviously it's worth much more than that. I eventually did sell it just because my room is so full (laughs) that even on my Ghostbusters shelf, I did not have a place where I could keep the firehouse. I kind of regret it because it was such a good deal. And I would love to have it still but i was just like yeah it's just gonna take up too much room so yeah but the bookends of greatest find in the early days greatest find lately wow you found a do- wow five dollar you, you spent more for it in the 90s than you did now that's true <laughs> <laughs> that's great so that does it for this episode of wizards next time around we've got venom on the cover of issue nine and we'll be joined by a special guest with some amazing stories to tell you about his early days reading wizard where his fandom had taken him today and remember if you like what you hear we encourage you to check us out on your favorite podcast platform and leave a five-star review on the retro network and don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel you know most of all spread the word let people know so until next time keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.